The sixth letter that Rilke wrote to Mr. Kappus, the young student poet, he wrote two days before Christmas on December the 23rd, 1903, from Rome. And here's what Rilke had to say. My dear Mr. Kappus, I don't want you to be without a greeting from me when Christmas comes. And when you, in the midst of the holiday, are bearing your solitude more heavily than usual. But when you notice that it is vast, you should be happy. For what, you should ask yourself, would a solitude be that was not vast? There is only one solitude, and it is vast, heavy, difficult to bear, and almost everyone has hours when he would gladly exchange it for any kind of sociability, however trivial or cheap. For the tiniest outward agreement with the first person who comes along, the most unworthy. But perhaps these are the very hours during which solitude grows. For its growing is painful as the growing of boys and sad as the beginning of spring. But that must not confuse you. What is necessary, after all, is only this. Solitude. Vast inner solitude. To walk inside yourself and meet no one for hours. That is what you must be able to attain. To be solitary as you were when you were a child, when the grown-ups walked around involved with matters that seemed large and important because they looked so busy and because you didn't understand a thing about what they were doing. And when you realise that their activities are shabby, that their vocations are petrified and no longer connected with life, why not then continue to look upon it all as a child would? As if you were looking at something unfamiliar, out of the depths of your own world, from the vastness of your own solitude, which is itself work and status and vocation. Why should you want to give up a child's wise not understanding in exchange for defensiveness and scorn since not understanding is, after all, a way of being alone, whereas defensiveness and scorn are a participation in precisely what, by these means, you want to separate yourself from. Think, dear sir, of the world that you carry inside you, and call this thinking whatever you want to, a remembering of your own childhood or a yearning toward a future of your own, only be attentive to what is arising within you and place that above everything you perceive around you. What is happening in your innermost self is worthy of your entire love. Somehow you must find a way to work at it and not lose too much time 
or too much courage in clarifying your attitude towards people. Who says that you have any attitude at all? I know your profession is hard and full of things that contradict you, and I foresaw saw your lament and knew that it would come. Now that it has come, there is nothing I can say to reassure you. I can only suggest that perhaps all professions are like that, filled with demands, filled with hostility toward the individual, saturated, as it were, with the hatred of those who find themselves mute and sullen in an insipid duty. The situation you must live in now is not more heavily burdened with conventions, prejudices and false ideas than all the other situations. And if there are some that pretend to offer a greater freedom, there is nonetheless none that is in itself vast and spacious and connected to the important things that the truest kind of life consists of. Only the individual who is solitary is placed under the deepest laws like a thing. And when he walks out into the rising dawn or looks out into the event-filled evening and when he feels what is happening there, all situations drop from him as if from a dead man, though he stands in the midst of pure life. What you, dear Mr. Kappas, now have to experience as an officer, you would have felt in just the same way in any of the established professions. Yes, even if outside any position you had simply tried to find some easy and independent contact with society, this feeling of being hemmed in would not have been spared you. It is like this everywhere, but that is no cause for anxiety or sadness. If there is nothing you can share with other people, try to be close to things. They will not abandon you. And the nights are still there, and the winds that move through the trees and across many lands. Everything in the world of things and animals is still filled with happening, which you can take part in. And children are still the way you were as a child, sad and happy in just the same way. And if you think of your childhood, you once again live among them, among the solitary children, and the grown-ups are nothing, and their dignity has no value. And if it frightens and torments you to think of childhood, and of the simplicity and silence that accompanies it, because you can no longer believe in God, who appears in it everywhere, then ask yourself, dear Mr. Kappas, whether you have really lost God. Isn't it much truer to say that you have never yet possessed him? For when could that have been? Do you think that a child can hold him him whom grown men bear only with great effort and whose weight crushes the old. Do you suppose that someone who really has him could lose him like a little stone? Or don't you think that someone 
who once had him could only be lost by him. But if you realize that he did not exist in your childhood and did not exist previously, if you suspect that Christ was deluded by his yearning and Muhammad deceived by his pride, and if you are terrified to feel that even now he does not exist, even in this moment when we are talking about him, what justifies you then if he never existed, in missing him, like someone who has passed away and in searching for him as though he were lost. Why don't you think of him as the one who is coming, who has been approaching from all eternity, the one who will someday arrive, the ultimate fruit of a tree whose leaves we are, What keeps you from projecting his birth into the ages that are coming into existence and living your life as a painful and lovely day in the history of great pregnancy? Don't you see how everything that happens is again and again a beginning? And couldn't it be his beginning that happens is again and again a beginning and couldn't it be his beginning since in itself starting is always so beautiful if he is the most perfect one must not what is less perfect precede him so that he can choose himself out of fullness and superabundance must he not be the last one so that he can include everything in himself. And what meaning would we have if he whom we are longing for has already existed? As bees gather honey, so we collect what is sweetest out of all things and build him, even with the trivial, with the insignificant, so long as it is done out of love, we begin with work and with the repose that comes afterward, with a silence or with a small solitary joy, with everything that we do alone, without anyone to help, without anyone to join or help us. We start him whom we will not live to see, just as our ancestors could not live to see us. And yet, they who passed away long ago still exist in us as predisposition, as burden upon our fate, as murmuring blood, and as gesture that rises up from the depths of time. Is there anything that can deprive you of the hope that in this way you will someday exist in him? who is the farthest, the outermost limit. Dear Mr. Kappas, celebrate Christmas in this devout feeling that perhaps he needs this very anguish of yours in order to begin. These very days of your transition are perhaps the time when everything in you is working at him, as you once worked at him in your childhood, breathlessly, 
be patient and without bitterness and realize that the least we can do is to make coming into existence no more difficult for him than the earth does for spring when it wants to come. And be glad and confident. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. This is the seventh letter that Rilke wrote to a young poet called Capus, Mr. Capus. And this letter he wrote from Rome on May the 14th, 1904. And a lot of it is about poetry and some of it is about love. And let me give you one more thing about it is, it says how difficult it is to love. And a lot of this stuff in here about loving falsely. So here we are. My dear Mr. Kappus, much time has passed since I received your last letter. Please don't hold that against me. First, it was work, then a number of interruptions, and finally, poor health that again and again kept me from answering because I wanted my answer to come to you out of peaceful and happy days. Now I feel somewhat better again. The beginning of spring, with its moody, bad-tempered transitions, was hard to bear here too. And once again, dear Mr. Kappas, I can greet you and talk to you, which I do with real pleasure, about this and that in response to your letter as well as I can. You see, I have copied out your sonnet because I found that it is lovely and simple and born in the shape that it moves in with such quiet decorum. It is the best poem of yours that you have let me read. And now I am giving you this copy because I know that it is important and full of new experience to rediscover a work of your own in someone else's handwriting. Read the poem as if you had never seen it before and you will feel in your innermost being how very much it is your own. It was a pleasure for me to read this sonnet and your letter often. I thank you for both. And you should not let yourself be confused in your solitude by the fact that there is something in you that wants to move out of it. This very wish, if you use it calmly and prudently, and like a tool, will help you spread out your solitude over a great distance. Most people have, with the help of conventions, turned their solutions toward what is easy and toward the easiest side of the easy. But it is clear that we must trust in what is difficult. Everything alive trusts in it. Everything in nature grows and defends itself any way it can and is spontaneously itself, tries to be itself at all costs and against all opposition. We know little but that we must trust in what is difficult is a certainty that will never abandon us. 
It is good to be solitary, for solitude is difficult. That something is difficult must be one more reason for us to do it. It is also good to love, because love is difficult. For one human being to love another human being, that is perhaps the most difficult task that has been made entrusted to us. That is perhaps the most difficult task that has been entrusted to us. The ultimate task, the final test and proof, the work for which all other work is merely preparation. That is why young people who are beginners in everything are not yet capable of love. It is something they must learn with their whole being, with all their forces gathered around their solitary, anxious, upward beating heart. They must learn to love. But learning time is always a long secluded time and therefore loving for a long time ahead and far on into life is solitude, a heightened and deepened kind of aloneness for the person who loves. Loving does not at first mean merging, surrendering and uniting with another person. For what would a union be of two people who are unclarified, unfinished and still incoherent? It is a high inducement for the individual to ripen, to become something in himself, to become world, to become world in himself for the sake of another person. It is a great demanding claim on him, something that chooses him and calls him to vast distances. Only in this sense, as the task of working on themselves, quote, to hearken and to hammer day and night, end quote, may young people use the love that is given to them, merging and surrendering, and every kind of communion is not for them, who must still for a long, long time save and gather themselves. It is the ultimate. It is perhaps that for which human lives are as yet barely large enough. But this is what young people are so often and so disastrously wrong in doing. They, who by their very nature are impatient, fling themselves at each other when love takes hold of them. They scatter themselves, just as they are in all their messiness, disorder, bewilderment. But what can happen then? What can life do with this heap of half-broken things that they call their communion and that they would like to call their happiness, if that were possible, and their future? And so each of them loses himself for the sake of the other person and loses the other and many others who still wanted to come and loses the vast distances and possibilities, gives up the approaching and fleeing of gentle, prescient things in exchange for an unfruitful confusion out of which nothing more can come, nothing but a bit of disgust, disappointment and poverty and the escape into one of the many conventions that have been put up in great numbers like public shelters on this dangerous road.
No area of human experience is so extensively provided with conventions as this one is. There are life preservers of the most varied invention, boats and water wings. Society has been able to create refuges of every sort, for since it preferred to take love, life, as an amusement, it also had to give it an easy form, cheap, safe and sure, as public amusements are. It is true that many young people who love falsely, that is simply surrendering themselves and giving up their solitude, the average person will of course always go on doing that, feel oppressed by their failure and want to make the situation they have landed in livable and fruitful and want to make the situation they have landed in livable and fruitful in their own personal way. For their nature tells them that the questions of love, even more than everything else that is important, cannot be resolved publicly and according to this or that agreement. That they are questions, intimate questions from one human being to another which in any case require a new, special, wholly personal answer. But how can they, who have already flung themselves together and can no longer tell whose outlines are whose, who thus no longer possess anything of their own, how can they find a way out of themselves, out of the depths of their already buried solitude? They act out of mutual helplessness, and then, if, with the best of intentions, they try to escape the convention that is approaching them, marriage, for example, they fall into the clutches of some less obvious but just as deadly conventional solution. For then everything around them is convention. Wherever people act out of a prematurely fused, muddy communion, every act is conventional. Every relation that such confusion leads to has its own convention. How every unusual, that is in the ordinary sense immoral, it may be. Even separating would be a conventional step. An impersonal, accidental decision without strength and without fruit. Whoever looks seriously will find that neither for death, which is difficult, nor for difficult love, has any clarification, any solution, any hint of a path been perceived. And for both these tasks, which we carry wrapped up and hand on without opening, there is no general agreed upon rule that can be discovered. But in the same measure in which we begin to test life as individuals, these great things will come to meet us, the individuals with greater intimacy. The claims that the difficult work of love makes upon our development are greater than life, and we as beginners are not equal to them. But if we nevertheless endure and take this love upon us as burden and apprenticeship, instead of losing ourselves in the whole easy and frivolous game behind which people have hidden for the most solemn solemnity of their being, then a small advance and a lightening 
will perhaps be perceptible to those who come long after us. That would be much. We are only just now beginning to consider the relation of one individual to a second individual objectively and without prejudice, and our attempts to live such relationships have no model before them. And yet, in the changes that time has brought about, there are already many things that can help our timid novitiate. The girl and the woman, in their new individual unfolding, will only in passing be imitators of male behaviour and misbehaviour and repeaters of male professions. After the uncertainty of such transitions, it will become obvious that women are going through the abundance and variation of those often ridiculous disguises just so that they could purify their own essential nature and wash out the deformities and influences of the other sex. Women in whom life lingers and dwells more immediately, more fruitfully and more confidently must surely have become riper and more human in their depths than light, easy-going man who is not pulled down beneath the surface of life by the weight of any bodily fruit or who, arrogant and hasty, undervalues what he thinks he loves. This humanity of woman, carried in her womb through all her suffering and humiliation, will come to light when she is stripped off the conventions of mere femaleness in the transformations of her outward status. And those men who do not yet feel it approaching will be astonished by it. Someday, and even now, especially in the countries of Northern Europe, trustworthy signs are already speaking and shining. Someday there will be girls and women whose name will no longer mean the mere opposite of the male, but something in itself, something that makes one think not of any complement and limit, but only of life and reality, the female human being. This advance, at first very much against the will of the outdistanced men, will transform the love experience which is now filled with error and will change it from the ground up and reshape it into the relationship that is meant to be between one human being and another, no longer one that flows from man to woman. And this more human love, which will fulfil itself with infinite consideration and gentleness and kindness and clarity in binding and releasing will resemble what we are now preparing painfully and with great struggle. The love that consists in this, that two solitudes protect and border and greet each other. And one more thing. Don't think that the great love which was once granted to you when you were a boy has been lost how can you know whether vast and generous wishes don't ripen? How can you know whether vast and generous wishes didn't ripen in you at that time and purposes by which you are still living today? 
I believe that the love remains so strong and intense in your memory because it was your first deep aloneness and the first inner work that you did on your life. All good wishes to you, dear Mr. Kappus. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. Wow. I think I better read that again. And again. Rilke is writing this letter at the age of 27. Here's what Rilke had to say. I want to talk to you again for a little while, dear Mr. Kappus, although there is almost nothing I can say that will help you, and I can hardly find one useful word. You have had many sadnesses, large ones, which passed. And you say that even this passing was difficult and upsetting for you. But please ask yourself whether these large sadnesses haven't rather gone right through you. Perhaps many things inside you have been transformed. Perhaps somewhere, someplace deep inside your being, you have undergone important changes while you were very sad. The only sadnesses that are dangerous and unhealthy are the ones that we carry around in public in order to drown them out with the noise. Like diseases that are treated superficially and foolishly, they just withdraw and after a short interval break out again all the more terribly and gather inside us and our life that is unlived, rejected, lost, life that we can die of. If only it were possible for us to see further than our knowledge reaches and even a little beyond the outworks of our presentiment, perhaps we would bear our sadnesses with greater trust than we have our joys. For they are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown. Our feelings grow mute in shy embarrassment. Everything in us withdraws. A silence arises, and a new experience, which no one knows, stands in the midst of it all and says nothing. It seems to me that almost all our sadnesses are moments of tension, which we feel as paralysis because we no longer hear our astonished emotions living, because we are alone with the unfamiliar presence that has entered us, because everything we trust and are used to is for a moment taken away from us because we stand in the midst of a transition where we cannot remain standing. That is why the sadness passes. The new presence inside us, the presence that has been added, has entered our heart and has gone into its innermost chamber and is no longer even there, is already in our bloodstream, and we don't know what it was. We could easily be made to believe that nothing happened, and yet we have changed as a house that a guest has entered, changes. We can't say who has come. Perhaps we will never know. But many signs indicate that the future enters us in this way in order to be transformed in us long before it happens. And that is why it is so important to be solitary and attentive when one is sad. Because the seemingly uneventful and motionless moment when our future steps into us, is so much closer to life 
than the other loud and accidental point of time when it happens to us as if from outside. The quieter we are, the more patient and open we are in our sadnesses, the more deeply and serenely the new presence can enter us, the more we can make it our own, the more it becomes our fate. And later on, when it happens, that is, steps forth out of us to other people, we will feel related and close to it in our innermost being, and that is necessary. It is necessary, and towards this point our development will move little by little, that nothing alien happens to us, but only which has long been our own. People have already had to rethink so many concepts of motion, and they will also gradually come to realize that what we call fate does not come into us from the outside, but emerges from us. It is only because so many people have not absorbed and transformed their fates while they were living in them that they have not realized what is emerging from them. It was so alien to them that in their confusion and fear they thought it must have entered them at the very moment they became aware of it, for they swore they had never before found anything like that inside them, just as people for a long time had a wrong idea about the sun's motion. They are even now wrong about the motion of what is to come. The future stands, dear Mr. Kappus, but we move in infinite space. How could it not be difficult for us? And to speak of solitude again, it becomes clearer and clearer that fundamentally this is nothing that one can choose or refrain from. We are solitary. We can delude ourselves about this and act as if it was not, were not true. That is all. But how much better it is to recognize that we are alone. Yes, even to begin from this realization. It will, of course, make us dizzy. For all points that our eyes used to rest on are taken away from us. There is no longer anything near us, and everything far away is infinitely far. A man taken out of his room, and almost without preparation or transition, placed on the heights of a great mountain range, would feel something like that. An unequalled insecurity, an abandonment to the nameless, would almost annihilate him. He would feel he was falling or think he was being catapulted out into space and exploded into a thousand pieces. What a colossal lie his brain would have to invent in order to catch up with and explain the situation of his senses. That is how all distances, all measures change for the person who becomes solitary. Many of these changes occur suddenly, and then, as with the man on the mountaintop, unusual fantasies and strange feelings arise, which seem to grow out beyond all that is bearable. But it is necessary for us to experience that too. We must accept our reality as vastly as we possibly can. Everything, even the unprecedented, must be possible within us. This is, in the end, the only kind of courage that is required of us. 
the courage to face the strangest, most unusual, most inexplicable experiences that can meet us. The fact that people have in this sense been cowardly has done infinite harm to life. The experiences that are called apparitions, the whole so-called spirit world, death, all these things that are so closely related to us have, through our daily defensiveness, been so entirely pushed out of life that the senses with which we might have been able to grasp them have atrophied, to say nothing of God. But the fear of the inexplicable has not only impoverished the reality of the individual, it has narrowed the relationship between one human being and another, which has as it were, being lifted out of the riverbed of infinite possibilities and set down in a fallow place on the bank where nothing happens. For it is not only indolence that causes human relationships to be repeated from case to case with such unspeakable monotony and boredom, it is timidity before any new inconceivable experience, which we don't think we can deal with. But only someone who is ready for everything, who doesn't exclude any experience, even the most incomprehensible, will live the relationship with another person as something alive, and will himself sound the depths of his own being. For if we imagine this being of the individual as a larger or smaller room, it is obvious that most people come to know only one corner of their room, one spot near the window, one narrow strip on which they keep walking back and forth. In this way they have a certain security. And yet how much more human is the dangerous insecurity that drives those prisoners in Poe's stories to feel out the shapes of their horrible dungeons and not be strangers to the unspeakable terror of their selves. We, however, are not prisoners no traps or snares have been set around us, and there is nothing that should frighten or upset us. We have been put into life as into the element we most accord with, and we have, moreover, through thousands of years of adaptation, come to resemble this life so greatly that when we hold still through a fortunate mimicry, we can hardly be differentiated from everything around us. We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And if only we arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the very last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our life are princesses we're only waiting to see us act, just once, with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So you mustn't be frightened, dear Mr. Kappas. 
if a sadness rises in front of you, larger than any you have ever seen, if an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and over everything you do, you must realise that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery, any depression, since after all you don't know what work these conditions are doing inside you? Why do you want to persecute yourself with the question of where all this is coming from and where it is going, since you know after all that you are in the midst of transitions and that you wished for nothing so much as to change? If there is anything unhealthy in your rejections, just bear in mind that sickness is the means by which an organism frees itself from what is alien. So one must simply help it to be sick, to have its whole sickness and to break out with it, since that is the way it gets better. In you, dear Mr. Kappas, so much has happened now. You must be patient like someone who is sick and confident like someone who is recovering, for perhaps you are both. But in every sickness there are many days when the doctor can do nothing but wait. And that is what you, insofar as you are your own doctor, must now do more than anything else. Don't observe yourself too closely. Don't be too quick to draw conclusions from what happens to you. Simply let it happen. Otherwise it will be too easy for you to look with blame, that is morally, at your past, which naturally has a share in everything that now meets you. But whatever errors, wishes and yearnings of your boyhood are operating in you now are not what you remember and condemn. The extraordinary circumstances of a solitary and helpless childhood are so difficult, so complicated, surrendered to so many influences and at the same time so cut off from all real connection with life, that where a vice enters it, one may not simply call it a vice. One must be so careful with names anyway. It is so often the name of an offence that a life shatters upon. Not the nameless and personal action itself, which was perhaps a quite definite necessity of that life, and could have been absorbed by it without any trouble. And the expenditure of energy seems to you so great, only because you overvalue victory. It is not the real thing that you think you have achieved. Although you are right about your feeling, the great thing is that there was already something there, which you could replace that deception with, something true and real. Without this, even your victory would have been just a moral reaction of no great significance. But in fact, it has become a part of your life. Your life, dear Mr. Kappas, which I think of with so many good wishes. Do you remember how that life yearned out of childhood towards the great thing? I see that it is now yearning forth beyond the great thing, towards the greater one. That is why you, it does not cease to be difficult, but that is also why it will not cease to grow. And if there is one more thing that I must say to you, it is this. Don't think that the person who is trying to comfort you now lives untroubled among the simple and quiet words that sometimes give you pleasure. His life has much trouble and sadness, and remains far beyond yours. If it were otherwise, 
he would never have been able to find those words. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. Oh, my goodness. I haven't read such a sustained piece of writing about mental health ever, ever in my entire life, I think, that I have ever felt totally at one with, totally at one with. I think perhaps the beginning of Malignant Sadness by Louis, Louis Walpert was certainly something that I resonated with just as well. But what a letter. I don't know how many drafts that letter went through. I don't know enough about Rilke to know if he was capable of writing that all in one sitting. What a time. What a time. Rilke wrote ten letters to a young poet at the start of the 20th century. This is the ninth letter. Now, these letters were published after Rilke died, and they were written when Rilke was about 27. This one was written from Sweden on November the 4th, 1904, and he's writing, My dear Mr. Kappus, and Kappus is the young student, during this time that has passed without a letter, I have been partly travelling, partly so busy that I couldn't write. And even today, writing is difficult for me, for I have already had to write so many letters that my hand is tired. If I could dictate, I would have much more to say to you. But, as it is, please accept these few words as an answer to your long letter. I think of you often, dear Mr. Kappus and with such concentrated good wishes that somehow they ought to help you. Whether my letters really are a help, I often doubt. Don't say, yes, they are. Just accept them calmly and without many thanks, and let us wait for what wants to come. There is probably no point in my going into your questions now, for what I could say about your tendency to doubt or about your inability to bring your outer and inner lives into harmony or about all the other things that oppress you is just what I have already said, just the wish that you may find in yourself enough patience to endure and enough simplicity to have faith, that you may gain more and more confidence in what is difficult and in your solitude among other people. And as for the rest, let life happen to you. Believe me, life is in the right, always. And about feelings. All feelings that concentrate you and lift you up are pure. Only that feeling is impure which grasps just one side of your being and thus distorts you. Everything you can think of as you face your childhood is good. Everything that makes you more of you than you have ever been even in your best hours, is right. Every intensification is good, if it is in your entire blood, if it isn't intoxication or muddiness, but joy which you can see into, clear to the bottom. Do you understand what I mean? And your doubt can become a good quality if you train it. It must become knowing. It must become criticism. Ask it. Whenever it wants to spoil something from you, why something is ugly, demand proofs from it, test it, and you will find it perhaps bewildered and embarrassed, perhaps also protesting. But don't give in. 
insist on arguments and act in this way attentive and persistent every single time. And the day will come when instead of being a destroyer, it will become one of your best workers, perhaps the most intelligent of all the ones that are building your life. That is all, dear Mr. Kappas, that I am able to tell you today. But I'm sending you, along with this letter, the reprint of a small poem that has just appeared in the Prague German Labour. In it, I speak to you further of life and death and of how both are great and glorious. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. I have been reading the letters that Rilke sent to the student, Mr. Kappas. There are 10 letters in all, and this is the final letter. What my intention is, having read all 10 of the letters, to say a few words in at another time about what the letters mean to me. This one was written in 1909 in Paris on the 26th of December, just after Christmas Day. What Rilke has to say is, you must know, dear Mr. Kappas, how glad I was to have the lovely letter from you. The news that you gave me, real and expressible, as it now is again, seems to me good news. And the longer I thought over it, the more I felt that it was very good news indeed. That is really what I wanted to write to you for Christmas Eve. But I have been variously and uninterruptedly living in my work this winter, and the ancient holiday arrived so quickly that I hardly had enough time to do the most necessary errands, much less to write. But I have thought of you often during this holiday and imagined how silent you must be in your solitary fort among the empty hills along which those large southern winds fling themselves as if they wanted to devour them in large pieces. It must be immense, this silence, in which sounds and movements have room. And if one thinks that along with all this the presence of the distant sea also resounds, perhaps as the innermost note in this prehistoric harmony, then one can only wish that you are trustingly and patiently letting the magnificent solitude work upon you, this solitude which can no longer be erased from your life, which in everything that is in store for you to experience and to do will act an anonymous influence continuously and gently decisive rather as the blood of our ancestors incessantly moves in us and combines with our own to form the unique unrepeatable being that we are at every turning of our life yes i am glad you have that firm sayable existence with you that title that uniform that service all that tangible and limited world which in such surroundings with such an isolated and not numerous body of men takes on seriousness and necessity and implies a vigilant application above and beyond the frivolity and mere time passing of the military profession 
and not only permits a self-reliant attentiveness, but actually cultivates it. And to be in circumstances that are working upon us, that from time to time place us in front of great natural things, that is all we need. Art, too, is just a way of living. And however one lives, one can, without knowing, prepare for it. In everything real, one is closer to it, more its neighbour, than in the unreal, half-artistic professions, which, while they pretend to be close to art, in practice deny and attack the existence of all art. As, for example, all of journalism does, and almost all criticism, and three-quarters of what is called, and wants to be called, literature. I am glad, in a word, that you have overcome the danger of landing in one of those professions and are solitary and courageous, somewhere in a rugged reality. May the coming year support and strengthen you in that. Always yours, R.M. Rilke. That's the last letter we have in the correspondence between Rilke and Mr. Kappas, whose first name I forget. Kappas published the letters from Rilke to him after Rilke died. He never published his own letters to Rilke. The only thing he ever published was a short poem which he sent to Rilke and which Rilke commented on in, I think, letter number nine or perhaps it was eight. So there, the ten letters, Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. I think my next job in this mini project beside saying something about what the letters as a whole mean to me and what individual bits of the letters mean to me there is a further aspect to the project i must uh, start to read poetry by rilke which i haven't seen for a very long time and uh, commit some to audio thank you very much for listening